Hello and welcome to Primary Sources, a spin-off podcast from the Doctor Who show where we take what people were saying about Doctor Who in the 80s and 90s and we riff on it. The conversation might stick closely to the primary source or it might go off on its own tangent, who knows. For this first episode, I'm joined by my Doctor Who show co-host, Dave. Hello, Dave. Hi, Rob, and I know literally nothing about the letters you've picked. I, I don't know where you've sourced them from. I am a complete blank page, so I am excited by the opportunities and terrified I'll have nothing to say. Yes, I I think you'll be fine. Uh, because, <laughs> because, listeners, what I've done briefly, and we won't explain this at the start of every show, we're going to try and keep these nice and quick. Indeed, you just heard the one-second theme music, for example. I'm going to take Doctor Who Monthly, or Doctor Who Magazine, as some people call it, and take letters from the 80s and 90s, primary sources, what people were saying back in the day. And I'm going to read them to you, Dave. Yes. Someone might be writing about Earthshock. You, Dave, might comment on, you know, what the letter had to say. You might give us your own take on Earthshock. You might want to talk about 80s Cybermen stories and then talk about Silver Nemesis more than you talk about Earthshock. Anything could happen. It's really up to you where you want to riff after we read the letter. Someone out there will be able to analyse my entire psyche by seeing which random path my my unedited stream of consciousness goes down. So this is uh, thrilling and terrifying. Let's get into it. Excellent. So Dave. Yes. It's March 1985. Right. This letter is called American Support. During the recent Doctor Who convention held in Chicago... John Nathan Turner was asked if there would ever be a doctor who did not have a British accent. The audience, in response, vehemently booed the questioner, and when Mr. Nathan Turner, in answer to the question, said no, he received a large and very enthusiastic round of applause. Colin Baker, likewise, was applauded when he remarked that the doctor doesn't have a British accent, but rather a Gallifreyan accent, which, to the untrained ear, sounds British. I think that this question and its response bring to light a point that should be emphasised. It is the distinctly British flavour of the show and the aspects of the character, direction and story brought to it by British actors, directors and writers that make Doctor Who what it is. Therefore, it seems unfair to me that Chicago should steal away the stars of Doctor Who during the month of November, which, as the people at the convention reminded me, is Doctor Who's birthday, for its yearly convention. Every Doctor Who fan is deeply indebted to Britain for the show's existence and for keeping the show alive until the rest of the world could come to appreciate it. There should be a Doctor Who convention every November, a great international convention where fans from all corners of the earth can gather, but it should be held in Britain, not anywhere else, if for no other reason than that Britain supported its creation when no one else would. And that's from Janine Goldfarb, California, USA. It's fascinating to think of the whole American fandom thing back then and how massively controversial it was. Mm -hmm. Because I I, I think about how much JNT at that time... We we now know, you look at um, uh, Richard Marsden's fantastic book on JNT, we now know just how dodgy he was being with American fandom like taking <laughs> taking you know basically nicking stuff from the BBC archives and taking it over there yes not not to mention you know having you know various um uh, you know 60s episodes or unaired versions of Sharda that are if you're a certain type of fan with certain pre- 
um, you know, uh, inclinations mm. you could get a private screening of with John, John Nathan Turner that was happening a lot in America. Private screening of other things too, I believe. Well, 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 well yes. Um, and also, like, like the, the old legend about how Fort of Doomsday was the first Davo story filmed because, oh, we thought it would be a really good idea to have his very first story be sort of fourth in production order so the team was ready and he was in the line. And actually, no, that's complete lies because JNT popped over to America for a week without making sure the script was ready. And, <laughs> and when he got back, it was completely unworkable. And Barry Letts, as the outgoing executive producer, had to give him a bit of, you know, pretty hard slapping and say, you don't go to America for fun without your scripts being in order. Mm-hmm. It's also amazing that this is the middle of the whole Perry thing, which is meant to be, you know, JNT's let's get the Americans on board by having a yank in the series. Mm-hmm. And clearly none of them wanted a yank in the series. They wanted no. it to be English. That's exactly right. So my question at the back of my mind was this whole thing about Doctor Who's Britishness. And, you know, should it always remain that way? You know, in the future, it might go to Netflix or something, you know, should it still remain British? The other thing that crossed my mind on that is is that it wasn't even British at this stage. It was actually English. True. I mean, we haven't yet had Sylvester McCoy come and come and do his Scottish accent, um, nor have we had David Tennant not allowed to do his Scottish accent, which was decades away. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it could get away with not being British, and I don't know that it would be successful if it wasn't. I'm kind of thinking about when J.K. Rowling sold the rights to the Harry Potter films and her stipulation of that was the cast needs to be English and even when they made the McGann movie the stipulation was that at least the Doctor needs to be English Mm. or or at least British and everybody else you know the the studio insisted well therefore the companion and the master and everyone else must be American because they're trying to sell it to an American audience and okay I'm going to put this back to you then Rob in the form of a question Mm. the people who kind of watched Doctor Who as a cultish, niche-ish audience on BBC America or or, all the various versions of it in the 80s. Sure, they love it. Do mainstream Americans in prime time expect an American lead? And therefore, is its potential limited? Well, given the propensity for the US to remake perfectly good British programs just so they can have US leads, I'm inclined to say that the mainstream probably does expect a US lead. Yeah, so would Doctor Who be successful with the traditional Doctor Who audience without a British lead? No. Do I think it can ever really strike the mainstream in America without an American lead? Probably not. I mean, even for for all the success that the show's had in America, particularly under the Matt Smith era, where it really sort of burst out there at the end of the tenant and started the Matt Smith era, you know, it was the most popular show on BBC America, which is kind of like, you know, here being the most popular show on SBS. Like, it's mm. it's still not a huge audience range. And it is sort of still in that cultish vibe. I, I think that there is a limit to the American audience. Kind of like Trek, although yeah. it was watched in the UK, and, and it certainly has fans in the UK, I've never really encountered a strong British Trek fandom. No, it's certainly there, but not... Not as strong as the US, that's for sure. No, I think I think it is kind of like who is in America. Whereas in Australia, because we kind of have that mix of British establishment and British culture that sort of you know settled the country and uh, and all the rest of it, but we also have a very close American tie, and we also share that you know very large 
frontiers type country mentality that America has. So some, something like Star Trek, I think, resonates with us a lot more than it would with the British. Yeah, that, that's interesting. But I've always been very, very fascinated by those big American cons, particularly those Chicago cons. Oh, yes. They must have just been the most amazing thing. And and certainly I've I heard stories the, the, the night that um myself and, and friend of the podcast, Richard, and a couple of others took Fraser Hines out for... Well, what was meant to be a, a polite interview for the club magazine and ended, ended, ended up being several bottles of wine later, just um, us getting hammered together, which was kind of fantastic. You know, Fraser, Fraser told these stories about going over to these conventions back back in the 80s and, you know, there were security guards everywhere and they would be escorted from the hotel room. And in the evening, he and Nicola Bryant went to the, snuck off to the, um, the, the hotel bar at one convention to, you know, have a, uh, have a drink. And uh, the miners would come over, oh, you can't do that, you can't do that. And he was like, no, we're, we're, we're going to have a drink. And they said, oh, well, that may, maybe a, a glass of wine with your meal. It's like, no, we'll start with a bottle, thank you very much. And he, <laughs> I, I actually can't repeat the phrase that he said about how shocked they were because it is not broadcastable. But, okay. they, yeah, he just said this this whole just mentality of, of them, you know, literally round-the-clock guards and, 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 and just managed in a way that, UK fandom wasn't it just it must have been bizarre should we try another letter yeah let's all right this one's called keep it under your hat right <laughs> since you started previewing forthcoming stories in 1981 the previews have improved greatly until this year is it really necessary to give away the whole plot of every story before it's even shown on the television I know now almost the entire storylines of the first two stories, especially Attack of the Cybermen. What you haven't said has been so broadly hinted at that anyone could guess what's going to occur. You point out the appearance of the Cybermen a year before Mondas reappeared, stating they've not discovered time travel. Then in the next paragraph you talk about the story being set in the sewers. It's therefore blatantly clear that these Cybermen are the ones remaining from the attempted invasion of 1975. Ah! <laughs> in future could such knowledge be kept to yourselves surely the success of keeper of track and an earth shock has shown the popularity of a surprise appearance by old enemies so why was it not possible to keep secret the return of the sontarans and the fact the master survived to appear in mark of the rani since Doctor Who magazine began its new format, I think it's greatly improved, and the standard of features has dramatically improved, especially in comparison to the patronising features of the early Doctor Who Weekly, which were both irrelevant and sycophantic. Never fall back into the trap of dismissing deserved criticism as well as deserved praise. Also, the presentation of the magazine is better, and I generally like the book reviews and agree with them. Although, I fail to see how the story of the invasion could be both the classic Cyberman adventure and six issues later an overlong romp. Also, I protest at the attack on Ian Marder, who has been excellent, with the exception of Enemy of the World. That's from Richard O'Hagan, Sutton Coldfield in the West Midlands. A few strands there to pick up on, Dave. Which one do you want to go for? Uh, look, one, one quick one to start with is it's fascinating to think about how much detail they went into in DWM and still got stuff wrong. Yes. <laughs> because I can remember at about... At about this time, probably a couple of years later, my main source of news being, again, the local fanzine, which was literally, you know, people just sort of getting hints from stuff like DWM and writing it up um, and, and getting it sometimes massively wrong. And I once asked um, Mark, who at the time edited a lot of the news section for this, 
uh, about it sort of you know 20 years later and he fully admitted that he made some of it up you know, he, he just he just saw that you know the, the, the title was um, you know time on the Rani and just sort of went oh, I'll just make up a few things about what I think it could be and um, <laughs> and we had no idea but my more serious comment is that this is that really big tension that Doctor Who has always had yes. between wanting to get people to watch the show mm-hmm. and wanting to surprise the viewers. And I think that the season that, that they're talking about there is actually a really, really good example of that. Would it absolutely have been a great surprise to repeat the Earthshock thing and and just call the story Attack or something? Mm. Or, you know, Invasion of the Cryons or, or something? And, and had the Cybermen been a big reveal? Absolutely. But if you're trying to basically launch the new season, the first Colin Baker season, and your big opener is the Cybermen, well you kind of want to call it Attack of the Cybermen and make sure everybody from the biggest fan down mm. to the most casual viewer know, knows that you want to get there. The same with the two Doctors. You know, if, if you've got Patrick Troughton, you don't want to hide that and, and, and call it, you know, um, what is it? The Andrew Gum Inheritance, which, which was the working <laughs> title. Like, you know, you've got Sontarans, you've got Patrick Troughton, you've got Fraser Hines. Mm. You want it to have a title that makes people, people look and watch it. And again, I'm getting very tricky on this thing, but I once saw an article that compared the way who did this to Trek. And, and for example, there was a story that they um, that's called Second Chances in Next Generation. And they said if that had been a Doctor Who story, it absolutely would have been called The Two Rikers. Right. Because, because you want to make that, that, that sort of thing come into it. But even Trek did it a bit. You know, the fact that they use Q puns in every... Q episode was clearly a way of saying to casual viewers, hey, John Delancey's back, you all love Q, tune in and watch. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they tried to work in the Borg name into titles where they could, but, but they weren't. So, and of course, Doctor Who you know, famously does it with the Daleks. You know, if, you, if you've got the Daleks, you want, you're doing that because you want an institute to tune in, so you put something of the Daleks in the title, um, and it still happens today. I mean, when the series came back, they called episode five or six, whatever it was, Dalek, like for a reason, you know, ladies and gentlemen, after 20 years, the Daleks are back. You know mm. why? Because the episode's called Dalek. <laughs> exactly. And something we mentioned on the show recently, modern Doctor Who even does this to a degree where you'll have a cliffhanger where the Doctor or a companion's being threatened. And then it's like, next time. And we see said Doctor or companion, you know, skipping through a field, having a having a jolly time. It's like, oh, well, they certainly get out of it, don't they? Yeah, and, and, and perhaps even more so, the series trailers that we get, particularly um, we used to get them after Christmas a lot, where they'll sort of have you know lots of early shots of the Doctor running, the companion running, lots of explosions, and it would end then with you know a money shot of a Cyberman silhouette or a Dalek saying exterminate, or mm. just, just that half a second something that makes the audience go, ah they've got this monster back or you know they'll put Stephen Fry in it now it turns out that Stephen Fry is in about one and a half scenes before getting brutally murdered and and you know then it's over but but you know Stephen Fry is at the front and, and center of it there's yeah. always this demand that's perfectly reasonable to try and get people to watch um, and that that has to beat surprise you know it, it we, we, we look back now at the legend of J&T not letting anybody know the Cybermen were in Earthshock. Mm. And, and yeah, like 30, 40 years later, that's a, a wonderful, like, isn't that an awesome move? And it's it's legendary. Did it affect the ratings? Would they have got better ratings for Earthshock if 
people who know the Cybermen were coming back? Probably. It's it's yeah. a very inside-the-bubble move. Should we go to our third and final email, Dave? Yeah, yeah, let's. All right. This one is called In Praise of Marta. The strip is fantastic. Take that as a fact, not an opinion. It's a strange way to start a letter, but okay. Uh, anyway, issue 96 was excellent. Great interview with Nicola Bright. Isn't it about time you did Colin Baker? One gripe, however, the on-target article was extremely vitriolic toward Ian Marta. Your reviewer seems to dislike writers who take risks. Well, Ian Marta is one of the best on-target authors there is, and his style suits Doctor Who down to the ground far more than your reviewer would suggest. The article then goes on to praise Terence Dix, who has always seemed to me to be nothing more than a production line author. Ian Marta, on the other hand, conveys an atmosphere brilliantly, example the Ark in Space or the Dominators, and his feeling for material comes across in his books. Not so for Terence Dix, who merely runs through the script in a visually bland fashion. On to the new program itself, and episode one of Attack of the Cybermen, the 45-minute episodes looks like a winning idea, just as great as the return to Saturdays. However, I was very disappointed at the ease with which the Cybermen were being dispatched. One was even killed by a bullet from a revolver. Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant were great, and I now have totally accepted him as the Doctor. Long may he reign! Lytton, too, was marvellously ruthless, and the story, so far, is not a classic, but nonetheless great entertainment. That's from Paul Bruce, Forfar, Scotland. Well, there's a lot in that, and mm. there's, there's two things that I want to pull out particularly. Uh, the first is that comment about the Cybermen being killed. I can remember being a fan in 87, 88, 89, and the letters pages of our local fanzine still being filled with that debate. Um <laughs> Kicked off in its second phase by the whole um, gold coin slingshot in Silver Nemesis. Mm. Um, and, and it was sort of brought into that, you know, were the Cybermen easily dispatched? Should bullets be able to affect the Cybermen? And then there was all the, all the well, it technically, you know, it was a point black range that went through his mouth and all that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> so it's just, it, it, is, it is interesting to see that because that was an obsession of fandom at the time. Um, and now is completely irrelevant mm. the martyr stuff though i'm really interested in because i can remember at about this era probably a few years later because i was a little bit young but even at this era i would have been having the the, the target novels read to be my, by my dad and then a few years later i was reading them myself and i can remember the ian martyr ones standing out as not being entirely faithful to the story mm. and, and that that really kind of irking me as a kid, I can remember the Ark in Space particularly. There was stuff in there that I'm just like, no, I've, I've seen this one. That's not right. <laughs> um, whereas the Terrence Dix ones were just so utterly, utterly faithful. Um, and I can also remember the Enemy of the World particularly. Now, I didn't know that if that was right or wrong because obviously I hadn't seen it. I hadn't even you know, heard naughty at that stage. It was completely mm. missing. But that was brutally graphic. I can remember the, the thing where the guy gets a, a stalactite stabbed through his brain or something yeah um and that certainly wasn't in the tv version we know now no <laughs> so i i've grown to like the end vibe i think Ian Martin's a really good writer and and, yeah. he, and he definitely now i can appreciate him pushing the story but yeah i totally get that whole conflict about is the role of a target novel at the time when there are no vhs releases there are no repeats in the uk is it its job to faithfully recreate the story or is it its job to expand the story and, and go a- outside. Uh, in, in the Ribos operation, Ian Marta 
changed the name of the um the tracer it's it's got some like really fancy name mm. and, and 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 that doesn't fit with the other the no, other novels so it's a legitimate debate that i think was even more valid back then what about you rob i think as a kid in the 80s I wanted the books to match the TV show because that to me was, you know, how it had to be. Yeah. Now I think I've almost completely gone 180 on that and I'm, I'm the, the other way. I think it, it's more interesting to flesh things out and maybe, you know, I got my first taste of that with the um, Remembrance of the Daleks novel or something like that. Yeah, I was, I was about to say we're probably only about three, four years away now from Remembrance of the Daleks coming out, uh, Ghostlight, Silver Nemesis, Fenric... Battlefield, mm. basically a lot of those Lady McCoys really pushing the envelope a bit, by which time I think fandom had settled down a bit more. And I think also by which time a lot of fans were able to record these on home VHS. And so there wasn't that sense of, I want to know what Enemy of the World was like as a story. Mm. Whereas Remembrance of the Daleks, like, I've got this on video. So I'm, I'm very happy for the, the novel to expand. Um, I, I think that that switch was really just about to happen, but it hadn't happened yet. It's really fascinating to hear that. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. So look, that was March 1985, Dave, in Doctor Who Monthly. I hadn't even started school. <laughs> what do you think of this concept? Do you think you'll come back and do another? I think I'll come back and do another, and I think I'd also be interested to hear some other people's views on these sort of things. Yes, that's what we do want to do. We've started hinting at this on social media, but uh, as well as Dave doing these with me, we want to reach out and, you know, pluck some people out of our audience, maybe people we've spoken to in the past. Certainly, we have some uh, ex-co-hosts, I'm sure, would like to do that, but also some uh, some listeners who have probably got something to say. If you've got a microphone and you can record yourself, talk to us. We'll see what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, look, these are meant to be short and sweet, so uh, until our next whatever comes on the feed um we'll talk to you soon we certainly will see ya bye